Oh my gosh, every day there is something that unfolds when it comes to this Donald Trump indictment thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of it today too. Yeah, one of us is missing though. <laughs> Poppy. Poppy is off. Good morning, everyone. Poppy's off. Welcome in. This is CNN This Morning. We have a lot to get to, but we're going to start you off with the five things that you need to know for this Tuesday. It is Tuesday, March 21st. The NYPD on alert today in response to Donald Trump's call for protests ahead of a possible indictment. A source is telling CNN that all officers are expected to be in uniform, ready to deploy. We're told no specific threat has been identified and there's still no word on a charging decision from the Manhattan DA. Also today, a massive strike has shut down Los Angeles public schools. Thousands of teachers and other workers are set to walk off the job for at least three days with negotiations in the district stalled. That means nearly half a million students will be out of school. Also, we are tracking a high-stakes summit just two hours away in Moscow. Russia's President Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping are set to hold more formal talks today. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has called Xi's visit, quote, diplomatic cover for Russian war crimes. New development on this one. Fox News and Dominion voting systems. Back in court this morning, a judge in Delaware going to hear arguments in Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. Both sides asking a judge to rule in their favor before a potential trial. And the boss is headed to the White House. President Biden is set to award Bruce Springsteen and many others with the National Medal of Arts. Other recipients and attendants are going to include Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Gladys Knight, Mindy Kaling. See it in this morning starts right now. Do you, do you know this dance? Of course. That is Courtney Cox. She jumps up on stage with the boss on that. I love yeah. Bruce Springsteen. You know what's funny about Mindy Kaling getting it? It's because, you know, The Office was such a big uh, launching pad for yeah. her career. It made her so famous. And it was obviously taped in Biden's hometown, Scranton, yeah. Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm going to have this song stuck in my head, by the way. So thank you, producers, yeah, very much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Okay, well, we will get more to what's happening at the White House with Bruce Springsteen. But this morning, we're going to start here in New York and Washington because police are on high alert in both cities after former President Trump called on his supporters to protest and take our nation back. That's a quote from him. He said today was the day he might be arrested. We should note, so far we have no indication that it's actually happening today. The timeline on a potential indictment is unclear, but security fences still going up around the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the U.S. Capitol this morning. The New York Police Department has told all officers to be in uniform and ready to deploy today as a possible indictment is still looming over the city. That's according to an internal memo that was obtained by CNN. But Manhattan's district attorney has not actually said if or when criminal charges are coming against Trump in the investigation of hush money payments to the porn actress Stormy Daniels. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here with us. Paula, there have just been so many developments in this, and we are tracking so many of them. Right now, we still don't have an indication that Trump is going to be indicted today. It does still seem imminent. But we did see Robert Costello going before the district or going before the jury yesterday. What do we know about what was said there? It was a pretty wild day at court <laughs> yesterday, Caitlin. I mean, this was a last, a last ditch effort by the Trump team to try to avoid an indictment. They asked prosecutors to bring Robert Costello before the grand jury to attack Michael Cohen's credibility. Cohen is, of course, a central witness here. And back in 2018, when federal investigators were looking into these hush money payments, Costello had several conversations with Cohen where he says Cohen insisted that it was his idea 
to make these hush money payments. And that contradicts other statements he has made. Now, following his appearance before the grand jury, Costello gave a, a little press conference of sorts. Let's take a listen to what he said. The only thing I'm doing is trying to tell the truth to the grand jurors. Listen, if they want to go after Donald Trump and they have solid evidence, so be it. But Michael Cohn is far from solid evidence. This guy, by any prosecutor's standard, and I used to be deputy chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York, I wouldn't have touched a guy like Michael Cohn, especially if he's a convicted perjurer. I have truth. I have the documentation. Let me rephrase that. The district attorney has no. the documentation in order to validate every single statement that I've made. Clearly, both men making their arguments in the court of public opinion. But yesterday, Cohen was at court, but he did not actually go before the grand jury. It was thought that he might be called in to rebut Costello's testimony. It's just fascinating if you've been, as we have, like following these people for so long, given Robert Costello used to be a legal advisor. To Michael Cohen. Uh, I think the question, though, now is when this indictment is going to happen. I think this is still a question even Trump's legal team has. Exactly, Caitlin. At this point, we just don't know if and when he will be indicted. Now, for any other defendant, the way this would work is a grand jury would vote to indict. If they choose to indict an individual, their attorneys are then notified that they've been indicted, but not necessarily on what charges. And then there's a negotiation for a self-surrender and an initial appearance. Now, talking to sources close to the former president, I am told that there won't be any problem if he is indicted with a surrender. There's not going to be any kind of standoff anywhere. And that he does want to appear if he is indicted in person, despite all the security concerns. Now, we've also learned that if he is indicted this week, uh, any initial appearance wouldn't happen until next week. And we're learning that not only from sources in the Trump world, but also law enforcement. Yeah, well, and clearly law enforcement is preparing for when that indictment could come down. Paula Reed, you're going to be very busy over the next several days. Thank you. And there's so much to discuss when it comes to this. We're joined now by someone with an intimate knowledge of how things work inside the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and that is Jeremy Salon. He worked as an assistant district attorney in Manhattan for seven years before current DA Alvin Bragg's tenure. So happy. Good morning. Thank Good morning. you for joining how are you? us this morning. So listen, we heard yesterday um, from Mr. Costello. We heard from uh, Mr. Cohen uh, as well. Michael Cohen was expected to go in yesterday to rebut what Costello said, but prosecutors determined somehow it wasn't necessary. Does this speak to anything that that we should be looking forward to in the future that possibly what Costello actually had to say didn't affect what, what Alvin Bragg and his investigators um, believe about this investigation? Well, the grand jury has the right to call a witness. So they very well say, today we want to hear from Michael Cohen or hear from another witness. They have that ability to call for whatever testimony they think is important. Yeah. I want to play this. This is what uh, Costello had to say about Michael Cohen after testifying yesterday. Watch this. The only thing I'm doing is trying to tell the truth to the grand jurors. Listen, if they want to go after Donald Trump and they have solid evidence, so be it. But Michael Cohen is far from solid evidence. This guy, by any prosecutor's standard, and I used to be deputy chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York, I wouldn't have touched a guy like Michael Cohen, especially if he's a convicted perjurer. Listen, Michael Cohen did plead guilty, right, went to jail. But also, Robert Costello has credibility issues as well. He's mentioned in the Mueller report his role in this whole hush money uh, investigation and cover-up as well. He has credibility issues. So why on earth would they call him to testify? 
everyone's going to have credibility issues sort of when you're in this arena. Uh, there's a term swamp that's been thrown around, but if you're going to get evidence against those who are involved in these allegations, that's what you're going to get. You're not going to find a choir board. You're going to find somebody who's immersed in it. And those people, unfortunately, may have some baggage. Yeah. So we've heard from uh, at least the, the reporting is that Stormy Daniels, right, has appeared before the grand jury, at least by Zoom. Not sure if there's testimony, but saying that she would be available. She and her attorneys, that she would be available. We've heard from Michael Cohen. We've heard from um, Robert Costello and others. Uh, this appears to be wrapping up. Everyone wants to know when it's going to happen. What, what is the timeline? Is it going to be today? Is it tomorrow? Is it next week? Having worked in the DA's office, is it possible to put a date or a time on that? Within reason, there is. This is an ongoing investigation. It's not a reactive investigation. It's proactive. So the DA's office should really know at this point, and in fact, well before, who is going to testify and what, if anything, is going to happen to throw that off course. So I'd expect that they should be summing up or wrapping up soon. And then once that happens, it becomes a procedural issue. The indictment is filed, and ultimately they reach out to the team for, for Trump to take those next steps. You say wrapping up soon. So what, what are the considerations now? Can, if you're looking at someone who has insider knowledge, if you're looking at what is playing out, seeing Costello and Cohen, et cetera, go in, what is happening inside of the office right now? I expect that all the evidence that they've wanted to present, they meaning the district attorney's office, has been presented. And if anything, for lack of a term, rebuttal or to clarify or to bolster, if that's the right term we want to use here, the credibility or what may have happened, that's going to come out now. But again, it's the grand jury's determination to decide what witnesses, if anything, they want to hear. But once that's wrapped up, the DA's office is ready to take those next steps. Jeremy, is it the grand jury's determination? Because the grand jury, can the grand jury vote to indict Donald Trump and then Alvin Bragg say, even with that, I'm not going to do it? Once a grand jury, invo- once a grand jury indicts, or what's we called a true bill, they have to take that next step. Ultimately, the DA's office can decide what they want to do going forward. But once there's an indictment, it has to proceed. Yeah. Here's the thing. This, is, this investigation has been called a zombie case. Now, everyone thought that after Cy Vance, that nothing was going to happen, that it would, nothing would happen for so long under uh, the current DA, Alvin Bragg, nothing happened. So what happened? How is this resuscitated or resurrected? Well, the argument from the DA's office is that it wasn't resuscitated. It's been going on all along. It's an ongoing investigation. These things don't happen overnight. It takes time to develop. There's others who will argue that there was political pressure uh, with, the, with the Pomerantz book and what's happening sort of socially. But, but the DA's office will take the position that we've always been doing our due diligence. This is about justice. This isn't about politics. And now we're at the point where you have to move it forward. Yeah. If you're looking at this, um, people are expecting, you know, will Donald Trump be handcuffed? Are we going to see him in a jumpsuit and what have you? It doesn't really work that way, especially when you have a high profile defendant. Unless he wants to be paraded in front of cameras, there, will, there are means and, and efforts that, to sort of mitigate that, possibly going in, probably through an underground uh, entrance and having this sort of expedited about him, my reporting is seeing a judge and doing it quickly, having the process play out quickly so that he doesn't have to be uh, photographed or seen doing any of these things. Well, he shouldn't be photographed once he's inside the building, but he'll be taken in. Like Except any- for a mugshot. Well, that absolutely. He'll be taken in. There will be a mugshot. There'll be a fingerprint. And then they're going to expedite him and walk him to the courtroom. He'll have to walk down the hallway unless for some reason they decide to bring him up through the judicial areas. So there's a separate set of elevators he can come up through. But otherwise, he's going to be brought in like anybody else. And to your point, he may very well want to be seen. He very well want to make this an issue that there can be a public showing or display where he can make sort of a statement. But in court, I would expect he'd be relatively quiet and his, his attorney will be doing most of the talking. So you think they'll expedite the court process, the seeing of the judge part of it, right? Because well, that can take some time. 
It, it can take some time, but they have to wait for the fingerprints. They, meaning law enforcement, has to wait for the fingerprints to get back. But yeah, it should move pretty quickly and efficiently. There's no reason to keep him there, especially with security risks and the concern that obviously the NYPD has. Are we talking hours? Uh, hours from the time of print, very well, potentially. But once he's in front of the judge, that's pretty quick. I mean, I wouldn't say snap of the fingers, but it could be a matter of minutes. Jeremy Solon, thank you so much. My I pleasure. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Caitlin. Also this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is an expected 2024 presidential hopeful, is breaking his silence on Trump's legal troubles and the looming indictment. DeSantis calling the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation politically motivated and vowing that his office won't get involved if the matter reaches his state, though it's not expected to. At the same time, though, he made a point of highlighting the conduct at the heart of the investigation. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. So, you know, he was getting asked that question by a reporter, but he had been facing some pressure from Trump's allies. Yeah. Like, why haven't you said anything about this? Because we saw a lot of other Republicans weighing in as soon as on Saturday, and DeSantis didn't weigh until yesterday. But, but notable, you know, he got criticized for that by Donald Trump Jr., who said yeah. he thought he was minimizing it. And so his response was a little shady. Right. When, yeah, he didn't have to point out. He did not have to point what out. It's the heart of this. The obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, House Republicans yeah. trying to intervene to defend, um, you know, head of this Donald Trump, a possible indictment here. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan and two other committee chairs are demanding testimony for from Manhattan's district attorney. It's an extraordinary move because Alvin Bragg doesn't work for the federal government. He's a local prosecutor. And this isn't a federal case. In a letter, the chairman accused Bragg of unprecedented abuse of prosecute, prosecutorial authority. Congressman Jim Jordan, though, admits that he doesn't actually know the full scope of potential charges. But you don't know the charges that we're against. No, we're going what you guys have told us. Yeah. I mean, that's all, all been reported. Aren't you so, yeah. jumping to conclusions? I mean, he may have broken the law. Is that concerning? We, we, don't think, we don't think President Trump broke the law at all. But what concerns me is what they're going to do based on what's been reported. That's why I said the letter. Yeah, it's interesting that they're making all of these comments and they don't even know what's going to happen, if there's even going to be an indictment. So that's why we turn to CNN's Melanie Zanona, live in Orlando, where House Republicans are having their annual retreat. So I'm sure she's got information on that. Good morning to you, Melanie. What's the latest? <laughs> Good morning to you, Don, from chilly Orlando. But House Republicans are turning up the heat on the Manhattan District Attorney's Office ahead of a possible Trump indictment. Three committee chairmen yesterday fired off a letter to Alvin Bragg. They are seeking both documents and his testimony by March 23rd. They want to know whether federal funds were used to investigate Donald Trump over this hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. And they also want to know whether there was any communication between the Manhattan DA office and between the Department of Justice. I want to read you part of the letter where they explain some of their reasoning. They wrote, 
Your decision to pursue such a politically motivated prosecution requires congressional scrutiny about how public safety funds appropriated by Congress are implemented by local law enforcement agencies. Now, Republicans admit they don't have any knowledge of whether federal funds are actually used in these sorts of cases. And they also admit they don't know the full scope of the charges that Trump might be facing. So it really shows the extraordinary lengths that House Republicans are willing to go to defend Trump and to try to discredit this investigation. Is pressing brag something the entire GOP agrees on here? I mean, could they be jumping the gun since they don't know? As I said, they don't know if charges will even be filed, Melanie. Right, Don, we've actually been asking that question, that exact question to Republicans here at their policy retreat. So far, I've only talked to one Republican, Don Bacon, who represents a Biden district, who said it would be more appropriate to wait until they see the actual indictment. But most Republicans are defending this effort to intervene in an ongoing criminal probe. Again, a very extraordinary and unprecedented move. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, in a pet and pad with reporters yesterday, said they have a right to ask questions. Scott Perry, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, told me they don't need to wait because they see the writing on the wall here. But Democrats see this as an abuse of power, a waste of congressional resources. And the Manhattan District Attorney's Office said they will not be intimidated by any effort to interfere in the justice system. Don. Melanie Zanona, someplace you don't hear these words, Chile and Orlando in the same sentence, <laughs> but that's where she is this morning. Thank you, Melanie. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, also this morning, in a few hours, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Putin are going to meet for a second day of talks as they are meeting in Moscow. Xi and Putin held four and a half hours of talks yesterday, calling each other dear friend during those discussions. The White House, on the other hand, remains concerned that China is still considering, still has on the table this idea of providing weapons for Russia to use in Ukraine as the two countries are working on strengthening their relationship CNN's Matthew Chance is live in Moscow. Matthew, I know there haven't been any real breakthroughs, it doesn't seem like, on Ukraine, but it's very clear that she is committed to, to strengthening this relationship with Putin. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is the, the basis of the relationship. As far as both Russia and China are concerned, you know, Russia is a vast pool of, of, of resources, raw materials, oil, forestry, things like that, uh, for the expansion of the Chinese economy. And of course, China uh, is an important market, the most important market for Russia, especially uh, since those tight international sanctions have really tried to uh, strangle uh, the Russian economy from, from, from elsewhere in the world. And so, in some ways, these two leaders have been forced together into this relationship and they're, and they're deepening it as much as possible. There is that issue of military aid that China has stopped short of providing Russia so far. It's not been discussed openly, but I expect that behind closed doors, that's something that, that, that's being, being talked about. They're also discussing that Chinese peace plan, a 12-point plan to try and resolve what they call the Ukraine crisis. Although, you know, in the West, of course, the United States, there's a lot of skepticism about whether that would work. Yeah, the White House has noted that peace plan doesn't include Russia withdrawing its troops from Ukraine. Uh, but the U.S. is also responding, saying they believe this meeting basically is diplomatic cover for Putin. And there's no ignoring it comes after that international criminal court uh, arrest warrant for the Russian leader. I mean, look, there's, no, there's no doubt this is of immense symbolic importance, this meeting with Xi Jinping. I mean, you, you've got a situation where this is the first time Xi Jinping has visited Russia since Russia's invasion uh, of, uh, of, of Ukraine, you know, more than a year ago. But it's also just days ago that, that President Putin was indicted at the International Criminal Court for war crimes. And so you know, this sends a strong message that Russia 
despite all that, is not isolated <coughs> in the world. And I think, you know, the photo op of Putin standing side by side with one of the most powerful leaders in the world, Xi Jinping, you know, the president, you know, the leader of China, you know, just sends an important message to Russians and to the international community as well. Again, that Russia isn't, isn't isolated. Yeah, no doubt. Clearly not from China. Matthew Chance in Moscow. Thank you. Also this morning, the Federal Reserve is now considering its next move on rates, a decision that has only been made tougher amid the banking meltdowns we've seen in recent days. Christine Romans is standing by. And a warning from the CDC, alarming new details. We're learning about a deadly fungus that is spreading rapidly in the United States. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right. Well, you see that that is Jerome Powell right there happening today. All eyes are going to be on him as the Federal Reserve meets to decide whether to raise interest rates yet again or to let dust settle from the biggest banking crisis since 2008. That's a big decision, right? Stocks rallied yesterday following turbulence from the collapse of two U.S. banks and a takeover of Credit Suisse. Banks involved in the takeover saw stocks jump, but mid-sized bank, First Republic, took another major hit. Its stocks falling another 47% as questions about its future persists. There's a lot to discuss with our chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christine Roman. Good She's morning. On top of it all. Good morning. He's, Jerome Powell really is walking a, a tightrope. What, do, what is Absolutely. he balancing here? I mean, look, if you look at the economic data really over the last, since they, had, they met last, it's been strong, right? All of these interest rate hikes have not really cooled down decisively the American economy. Inflation is still, you know, 6%, still three times what the Fed would like to see. But then you have this banking crisis, which shows that all of these rate hikes are revealing some cracks in the system. We've had all of these things that regulators have had to do to calm the banking system. And so the question is, does that change the Fed's calculus today when it begins a two-day meeting on interest rates? And so essentially they're deciding and they're deciding very quickly what to do here. What, what are the options really that they have when it comes well, to this? I mean, a week and a half ago, honestly, a week and a half ago, we thought the Fed would probably raise 50 basis points because the U.S. economy was so strong. But everything has changed since the banking system started showing that turmoil. So there's a case here for no rate hike. It, prudent to pause after the banking system had started to wobble here. The con, though, is does that spook international markets that there's something out there that the Fed sees that means they have to slow down on their, uh, on their rate hike uh, campaign? So the consensus is a 25 basis point rate hike. It shows the Fed is serious both about inflation and about financial stability. They can do both at the same time, right? And then I guess there's a small, small chance they could be like the ECB, the European Central Bank, and say, no, no, inflation is so important, and we believe in our banking system, so we're going to raise interest rates 50 basis points. Uh, Goldman Sachs is, come, is out here saying that the stress in the banking system is, is just too much. They need to just take a pause in the inflation fight. And so what do we think? <laughs> what does the market think? The market thinks they do 25 basis points today. Again, 10 days ago, I would have said it was a slam dunk for 50. 25 seems to be the consensus, you guys. I think, is it fair to say that he's facing some criticism on how he's handled inflation? Chief among them, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's listen. We'll get Christine's response. Here it is. He's failing in both jobs, both as the oversight yeah. manager of these big banks, which is his job, and also what he's doing with inflation. I don't think he should be chairman of the Federal Reserve. So what do you think? And can he restore confidence? Christine? So she has been a critic of the Fed's rate hikes. You know, so that's not really new. Calling for his ouster is shows how 
concerned she is about the fact that the Fed does have supervisory oversight of SVB, that bank that failed. And she's saying there should have been better red flags. The Fed should have known that this was going to be a problem. She's also criticizing the Fed because, look, all of these rate hikes, remember way back when we were talking about transitory inflation, the Fed chief, also the Treasury secretary, and a lot of chief economists for big banks thought that inflation was just going to be temporary. It wasn't. That was a fatal flaw in their calculation, which means they started raising interest rates too late, and then they started going too too aggressively here, and that's what's caused the uh, the turmoil in the in the market overall. So, you know, he's going to have to restore confidence, I think, Don, to answer your question, uh, by transparency, by being very clear in his press conference tomorrow about what the Fed is seeing, what has changed, and how you can do both. You can fight inflation, and you can have a banking system that is strong at the same time. Yeah. Christine Romans. Tough call. Yeah, tough call. Watching all of this for us. I would not want that job. I'm telling you right now, I'm glad I'm sitting here talking about that job, not doing that job. That job, and I don't know why anyone wants to be president of the United States, but you know, hey, that's on them. <laughs> <laughs> job that I would never want. Thank you very much, Christine. Straight ahead, Republican Congressman Byron Donalds from the Financial Services Committee will join us. His thoughts on what he thinks the Fed should do next. In the meantime, the aftermath of Alex Murdoch's sentencing for double murder, a mysterious death near his home from years ago is drawing renewed attention. Yeah, we'll check in on that. And also the anticipation of a possible Trump indictment is extending well beyond the United States. The world is also watching, keeping close tabs on how the criminal justice system is going to potentially treat a former American president. We're going to get the reaction live from London. The CDC with a new warning this morning about a deadly, apparently drug-resistant fungus that is here in the United States. The agency says that it has spread at an alarming rate in long-term hospitals and other healthcare facilities. It's being called Candida auris and has been detected in more than half the country. CDC data shows that more than 1,400 cases were reported in 2021, a 200% increase from 2019. It's not a risk to people who are healthy, but it can be a very serious danger to people who have compromised immune systems, including the elderly. I thought the Murdoch saga was over. It is not. There are fresh questions this morning with ties to the Murdoch family in South Carolina. As you remember, the former attorney, Alec Murdoch, was sentenced to life in prison for murdering his wife and younger son. Now investigators have reopened the investigation into the death of 19-year-old Stephen Smith. He was found dead in the middle of a road near the Murdoch family home, a Murdoch home back in 2015. Now, Smith was a classmate of Murdoch's older son, Buster, and questions remain about how Smith died. His family now pushing for Smith's body to be exhumed. And for more, we turn to CNN's Diane Gallagher. She joins us live from Charlotte, North Carolina this morning. Good morning to you. The Smith family attorney says this is about seeking justice and has nothing to do with the Murdochs. What do you know? Uh, Don, the attorney saying, look, they want a fresh start with a fresh look at Stephen Smith's body. Uh, from the beginning, the Murdoch name has sort of swirled around the death of Stephen Smith from witness interviews back in 2015 to the state saying they reopened the case because of information they gathered while investigating the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. But those are just rumors. There's never been a direct connection. And now Buster Murdoch is speaking out about those rumors for the first time. Where's your emergency? Yeah, uh, I just pulled down the wrong Parkerville Road. Mm-hmm. I see somebody laying out. It's been nearly eight years since the body of 19-year-old Stephen Smith was found in the middle of this country road in Hampton County, South Carolina. 
The teen's death gained national attention in June 2021, nearly six years after he was killed, when the state law enforcement division announced that it was opening an investigation into his death based upon information gathered during the course of the double murder investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Verdict guilty. Alec Murdoch was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of his wife and son earlier this month. For the rest of your natural life. And investigators have never revealed what information they gleaned from the Murdoch murders investigation that resulted in his case being opened. Today, new private efforts launched to uncover the circumstances, spearheaded by Smith's mother, Sandy, and two attorneys. The first goal, exhuming Smith's body. We think we have good cause to show why a fresh set of eyes on this would be beneficial. It kind of has to start with a fresh new look at the body. Initial reports said the nursing student died on July 8, 2015 from blunt force head trauma, originally said to be the result of a hit and run. But the accident investigation team report cited, quote, no vehicle debris, skid marks or injuries consistent with someone being struck by a vehicle. I just love my son. And since I couldn't protect him, I'm going to fight for him. Smith's mother said she worried her son may have been targeted because he was gay. According to police files, during interviews with friends and family after Smith's death, the Murdoch name kept coming up. But no suspect has ever been named, and authorities have never connected anyone in the Murdoch family to Smith's death. Still, rumors and innuendo persisted as the Murdoch case spawned podcasts, documentaries, and a rabid social media following, often with Buster Murdoch, a former classmate of Smith, at the center of the speculation. He broke his silence in a statement provided to CNN saying in part, I have tried my best to ignore the vicious rumors about my involvement in Stephen Smith's tragic death that continue to be published in the media as I grieve over the brutal murders of my mother and brother. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death and my heart goes out to the Smith family. Smith's attorneys caution the public, this is not about the Murdochs. This is not a Alex Murdoch 2.0 or any Murdoch 2.0. This is a Stephen Smith 2.0. It's all about Stephen. Uh, and at heart of this, this is a mother who for nearly eight years has wondered what happened to her son and who did it to him. Sandy Smith started a GoFundMe. She's raised more than $75,000 that will go to pay to exhume her son in a private autopsy once a judge allows of that petition that they plan to file. And look, Don, uh, we did reach out to SLED. They said that their investigation is active and ongoing. They told us that they have made progress looking into the death of Stephen Smith. Oh, my goodness. There's so many twists and turns when it comes to what's happening with the Murdochs. Yeah. Thank you very much, Diane Gallagher. She's on top of it. Widespread bullying, homophobia, misogyny, and racism, that is what's going on inside London's Metropolitan Police Department, according to an official review released just moments ago. The response pouring in. This morning, former President Trump and pretty much everyone else is awaiting to see if there is going to be an indictment of him over the hush money payment to the adult film star Stormy Daniels. And now New York City is preparing and bracing for possible protests after Trump called on his supporters to protest and, quote, take our nation back. Trump's legal issues have drawn attention from around the world as he could be the first former U.S. president to potentially face criminal charges. For more on the international perspective here, we want to bring in CNN's Bianca Novolo and Max Foster, who are in London this morning. Good morning to you guys. I mean, we are all sitting back 
and I'm watching and waiting. You know, this is unprecedented. I think both sides would agree with that. What are you, what are leaders there saying? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's definitely in the papers, as you saw there, but it's not on the front pages. It's not a headline story. I think people are really confused about which court case, what it means, and then you very quickly find out that he could still run for president if he gets arrested today, as he's obviously claiming. So I think people are a bit lost in it. And also, yeah, don't you think he's gone off the radar a bit on the global headlines, as opposed to obviously when he was in power? He certainly did, but that's why there's been a focus, almost a fixation on his return to social media and the internet. And that's actually been plastered across quite a few newspapers across Europe this week. I think there is an incredulity at the fact that he could still run for president regardless of being indicted. For many countries, that's not a possibility or it's just normatively not acceptable. We see some similarities as well to the situation of the former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, who has been called a, a, a Donald Trump of Pakistan, and they've been questioning if they're going to have their January 6th moment because he's been asking his supporters to come out in the streets and protest against charges against him, which he alleges are politically motivated for, to prohibit him from being successful in the next election. It's interesting that you say that, Bianca, that people are sort of flummoxed that someone could run for president after being arrested. I, I mean, I, I have to mention that one of our com competitors last night did a, um, a very good take on people here, politicians in the United States who have been arrested, who ran for office. Some of them still won. And, you know, it wasn't earth shattering. The sky didn't fall. So it's something that has happened here except at the level of, of presidency. I do want to turn now because, and, you know, well, sort of speaking about the, the White House, they are closely watching Xi Jinping, this three-day trip that he has uh, meeting with, with Putin. How is Europe reacting to that? It's definitely front-page stuff. It's the imagery, I think, more than anything, rather than what they're going to discuss. It's this idea of seeing them together over a three-day summit, effectively, and this locus, really, that feels away from Europe and America, and it's slightly unsettling. A lot of the commentary is the idea that, you know, a reaction, really, to America, Europe being involved, uh, getting involved in Asia-Pacific, and this is Xi and uh, Putin uh, creating a new locus in Eurasia, if you like. So I think the idea that there's this alternative power base forming is quite unsettling to a lot of people. Yeah, it's become a bit of a lightning rod for this deepening anxiety which we see across Europe about this bipolarity, the West, the US and NATO versus China, Russia, Iran. And, and you can see these political shifts occurring and all of the events and the meetings and rhetoric only serve to underscore that happening. So with the exception of, for example, a country in Europe like Serbia, which is more closely aligned with Putin, there is that disquiet and unease at what we're watching unfold. We also want to get your reaction because we're hearing from the prime minister there in London right now talking about this independent review of Britain's largest police force, and apparently it has exposed this culture of institutional racism, misogyny, homophobia. What is the response going to be to that? What, what's the repercussions? Well, first of all, Caitlin, this is a startling report, 365 pages, which does uncover mm. rampant discrimination, a failure of women and child protection, an inability of the police to police themselves, and what is tantamount to a shattering of public confidence in the police. Just to give you a taste of some of the stories that we've read about in reports that are contained, 
You hear about a Sikh man's beard being cut because police officers thought it was funny, somebody's turban oh. being hid, bacon being put in the shoes of a Muslim man, women being mm. forced to eat large amounts of cakes oh until gosh. they vomit as part of a hazing and initiation ritual. I mean, it's truly shocking stuff. Yeah, and it's, it, 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 she's very clear, the author, she investigated for a year. This is uh, institutional racism, sexism and um, homophobia. It's completely ingrained. And, I mean... We've been covering racism in the Met for decades. It just hasn't changed. So she actually suggests the solution is to break it up. Wow. Oh, wow. Talk to us more about that. How so? Well, just because it hasn't changed, if it's so ingrained, and she describes a boys' club, uh, and, the, who, uh, and, the, and members of staff and the public weren't protected about, from abusive officers. And if you go back to the Stephen Lawrence case, you know, we've been talking about racism in the Met Police for so many years, and they just don't seem to progress. So well, my she's question, saying, is there an appetite break for it that, up. Max? Is there a, to break it up? Is there an appetite? Could that really happen? I think if you lose trust in the police... What's the alternative? You've got to change the brand at the very least, don't you? This report feels like a jumping-off point for wider conversations about reform. I think generally in the United Kingdom there hasn't been the same kind of discussion about what to do with the police, but now that this has been exposed in such a stark way, in black and white, and we've had, certainly with a female population as well as the issues with racism, assaults against women, the murder of Sarah Everard by a former police officer, I mean, this is really shocking and I'm sure it will precipitate more conversations about what to do here because the problems are not going away if anything there's been evidence that people are trying to cover them up within the police and that they're only going to become more entrenched Mm -hmm. yeah it's a remarkable report Bianca and Max thank you both for joining us this morning All right. Also, what we're talking about, a remarkable development. It is being called a complex but calculated murder. What police are now revealing about a Colorado dentist who's been accused of killing his wife by poisoning her protein shakes. Wow. Okay, listen to this story. There is a dentist in Colorado who has been charged with fatally poisoning his wife and what authorities are calling a heinous complex and calculated murder. Now, Aurora police say James Craig drove his wife, Angela, to the hospital on Wednesday because she was having severe headaches and dizziness. Now, her condition deteriorated quickly, and she was declared medically brain dead before being taken off life support. According to the affidavit, police say Craig bought arsenic and cyanide off of Amazon, secretly dosed his wife's protein shakes. Screenshots of text messages from earlier this month show Angela telling James, quote, I feel drugged. Then James replied, given our history, I know that must be triggering. Just for the record, I didn't drug you. I'm super worried, though. You really looked pale before I left, like in your lips, even. Investigators say Craig's Internet search history includes, quote, how many grams of pure arsenic will kill a human? Is arsenic detectable in autopsy? And a YouTube video for top five undetectable poisons that show no signs of foul play. Angela's sister told police that James had multiple affairs and that the family was struggling financially. The Craigs have six children. Can I just say, if you tell someone you feel like you were drugged and they respond, I didn't drug you, it's a little suspicious. It's a little weird. I mean, and how suspicious is that internet history? I mean, basically... Yeah. It, Which is what we saw in that other case as well. There yeah. you go. Anyway, okay, moving on to something on a lighter note. Could <laughs> Washington my former lovely home, be getting a little touch of magic. 
CNN has learned that the NBA legend Magic Johnson has now joined an effort to potentially buy the commander's NFL team. One of Magic's representatives tell us that he is teaming up on the bid with Josh Harris. That's the billionaire co-owner of the 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Magic is currently a part owner of the Dodgers, and details around the bid are still unknown. Right now, we do know Dan Snyder owns the Commanders. He has faced several investigations and scandals, including allegations of fostering a toxic workplace. And last year, he indicated that he was taking steps to sell the team. Estimates suggest any deal would have to be between 5 to $7 billion. Love, love, love Magic Johnson. Magic and his wife, Cookie, his son, EJ, they're just a fantastic family. But I love Magic Johnson. He's an amazing businessman well, as well. And it's a collective feeling, I think, in Washington. That team needs some revitalization. Oh, yeah. Stadium, everything. People want to be able to go to those games and have fun. And Magic could help. Let's hope so. All right. So right now, New York and D.C. bracing for possible protests ahead of, of a potential Donald Trump indictment. Can you believe that? Look at the preparations underway in these two cities, right? You see those gates and barricades? It's all about a hush money probe. Hush money probe, the latest details. Stay with us. More CNN this morning to come after the break. barricades. There's security cameras that were just newly installed after Trump has called for protests on social media and rallied his base to, quote, take our nation back. He believes that this is a very big political plus for him, which is why he is banning the flames. If they want to go after Donald Trump and they have solid evidence, so be it. But Michael Cohn is far from solid evidence. The beauty that I have is I have facts. I have truth. I have the documentation. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin will meet for a second day of talks at the Kremlin. This is a critical time in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and she is framing himself as a possible peacemaker. Is there going to be a substantial Chinese contribution to the Russian war effort, or is this just a bunch of talk, and that remains to be seen? The Federal Reserve begins meeting today to decide whether to raise interest rates again. It's about who's going to be vulnerable as interest rates rise. And that could be companies, it could be consumers, it could be entire countries. The U.S. banking system is significantly more secure than it was in 2008. The question, of course, is whether or not people believe that. The second largest district in the nation, more than a thousand schools in all, shut down by this strike. We need to make a living wage. I believe this strike could have been avoided, but it cannot be avoided without parties at the table. Cracked in the air, deep center field, Thomas on the move, it's off the wall, Otani's in to score, here comes the winning run, Japan turns it around on its last breath. Were they excited then? They went nuts. <laughs> it was one of the greatest games. Yeah. If you watch that walk-off, I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, a snapshot you just saw of what's on the menu. But this morning, we're going to start with police ramping up security in New York City and Washington, D.C., as former President Trump calls on his supporters to protest and take our nation back. So here we go. I guess you can call it really a tale of two cities. Today is a day Trump claimed that he might be arrested and police have set up security fencing around the U.S. Capitol and Manhattan District Attorney's Office. To be clear, the Manhattan DA hasn't actually said if or when criminal charges might be coming in the Stormy Daniels hush money investigation. CNN has learned the NYPD has told all of its officers to be in uniform and ready to deploy today in the event 
that something does happen. So let's hope it does not. But we want to bring in now our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. She's here with us covering the twists and turns. I don't know how you keep it all together as to what case you're you're covering here because there have been so many. And a lot I, of caffeine. Yeah, <laughs> listen, I, and I, I, it's not really tongue-in-cheek. It's the truth. There yeah. is a lot, right? So what did we learn yesterday when it as, as it relates to the Manhattan DA's case? It was a dramatic day down at the courthouse yesterday because this was really uh, the last-ditch effort by the Trump team to try to prevent an indictment. They asked prosecutors to bring a witness before the grand jury to attack Michael Cohen's credibility because, of course, he is the, the witness really at the center of this hush money investigation. And this witness, this is uh, someone who's well-known in Trump circles. He's represented a lot of Trump allies, like Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. His name is Rob Costello. And back in 2018, when federal investigators were looking at this whole hush money investigation, they, these two, Costello and Cohen, they had many different conversations. And Costello says that during those talks, Cohen told him that it was Cohen's idea to do the hush money payments. That directly contradicts Cohen's subsequent statements about how this all went down. Now, after he testified, Costello gave a little press conference of sorts. He addressed reporters. Let's take a listen to what he said and how it contrasts what Michael Cohen says. The only thing I'm doing is trying to tell the truth to the grand jurors. Listen, if they want to go after Donald Trump and they have solid evidence, so be it. But Michael Cohen is far from solid evidence. This guy, by any prosecutor's standard, and I used to be deputy chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York, I wouldn't have touched a guy like Michael Cohen, especially if he's a convicted perjurer. I have truth. I have the documentation. Let me rephrase that. The district attorney has the documentation in order to validate every single statement that I've made. So filing their closing arguments in the court of public opinion, but in the court that's actually making the decision, the grand jury. At this point, Don, we don't know if they have any more witnesses. We don't know if and when they will vote on a possible indictment. The only thing we know right now is that if there is an indictment this week, the former president's team said any initial appearance or arrest wouldn't take place until next week. Well, it's interesting that you have Bob Costello saying, Michael Cohen is not credible. But is Bob Costello credible? Look, I've actually dealt with Bob for a long time. Like I said, he represents Rudy Giuliani. He represents Steve Bannon. In my experience as a reporter, he has never steered me wrong. But he has come under scrutiny for some of his decisions and in other investigations. But ultimately, it's up to the grand jury. And it's interesting because they, they ha- could have called Michael Cohen to rebut his testimony, and they didn't. Now, will this be enough to, to change the grand jury's mind? Unlikely, but it's certainly made for an interesting day at court. This is truly what I'm just not saying this. Everyone is watching and yeah. waiting, and you're totally. covering it. Thank you, Paula Reed. Appreciate it. Caitlin? Everyone is watching, but a big question is how we got here, given this is something that has been reported for years now. So for more on this, I want to bring in Michael Rothfeld, who is an investigative reporter at The New York Times, was a member of the Pulitzer Prize-winning team at The Wall Street Journal that revealed the hush money deals involving Trump. He's also the co-author of the book The Fixers, The Bottom Feeders, The Crooked Lawyers, and Gossip Mongers, and Porn Stars, who created The 45th President. Quite a title there, but you have been, you were on the team that broke the story when you were working at the Wall Street Journal. I think it's important to walk back through it because it is something that we've been talking about since 2016. Obviously, there's been a lot of investigations into Trump. So kind of tell us how all of this got started, how we found out about the entire Stormy Daniels moment. Absolutely. This is, it's a, it is a long story and it starts 17 years ago in 2006 at a golf, golf tournament in 
Lake Tahoe in Nevada where Donald Trump was playing the celebrity golf tournament and he meets Stormy Daniels. We see a picture of them together right there at that golf tournament. And according to her, he invited her to dinner at his hotel suite one night after the after the tournament and uh, they slept together. And then he promised her that he would put her on The Apprentice. So he never did that. And then flash to 2011, Trump is sort of waging a kind of run for president. You know, he tried several times. People said it was a publicity stunt. Stormy is upset she didn't get on The Apprentice, so she tries to make money off of her story of sleeping with Trump. And uh, she is unsuccessful. She does get a deal to sell it to a magazine, but Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer, threatens the magazine and it never gets published. Okay. And then 2015, Trump is running again for president. Actually running this time. Actually running and is actually doing kind of well. And um, uh, so basically, Stormy sees another opportunity and she tries to sell it again through her agent in early 2016, but she can't sell it. And because no one's interested. No one's interested. And, you know, Trump also has known about the fact that she's out there all this time, has not bought her story, has not tried to silence her until. Um, we get to uh, a month before the election. Right. This is a critical timeline, and all this is like a critical juncture of this, this, is this the, entire saga. This is really the crucial point that is what makes this uh, potentially a campaign finance violation because Access Hollywood tape comes out. It's a month before the election, and Trump is heard on tape talking about groping women, and it's it's horrifically damaging to his campaign. And so at that point, Stormy's people come out of the woodwork again and say, hey, if it comes out now that he slept with a porn star, it's going to be really damaging to him. And so Michael Cohen, his fixer, uh, well, first— and so they're pitching it to the Inquirer yeah, this time. The National Inquirer, David Pecker, the publisher, is a friend of Trump's. He had previously, uh, just a couple months before that, paid off a Playboy model— to be silent, who also, Karen McDougal, said she had an affair with Donald Trump around the same time as Stormy Daniels slept with him. And so they're involved. They're trying to help Trump keep this quiet. And, um, you know, but they, Pecker doesn't want to pay Stormy because he just paid this other woman $150,000. So they refer it to Michael Cohen, the fixer. And so... Um, Mike, Which is just three days after three days this story after Access Hollywood. So this timing, the fact that she had tried to sell it for all these years and couldn't, but only now, three days after Access Hollywood, a month before the election, Trump now is willing to buy the story. That's what prosecutors will argue makes it a campaign finance violation um, because that shows that it was related to his campaign and not just to protect his wife or something like that. But was her assumption that they were going to publish the story? She didn't understand. She didn't know at the time, her and her agent, that they were buying the story to kill it, to not let it be published. Uh, no, Stormy, Stormy knew what she was okay, doing. Okay, so she knew that they yeah. were buying it and it wasn't going to become public. Yeah, she may, basically wanted to, to, to make some money off of this, um, at least to get some benefit because she felt she had been cheated um, after he promised her to put her on The Apprentice, and he never did. And so what's at the heart of this is that Cohen pays her the $130,000. He has a signed copy of the agreement that we can see here, DD and PP. Those were the names, the aliases that were used to represent Trump and Stormy Daniels. That's right. Of course, then the election happens, Trump wins, and Trump reimburses Cohen, as we later learn once he's in office. Exactly. Um, Trump uh, agrees to pay Michael Cohen 
uh, monthly installments uh, and calls them legal fees, which they were not because Michael Cohen did not have a legal retainer. He actually didn't do any legal work for Trump while he was president during this period of time. So that's what Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, is going to say were uh, false business filings at the Trump organization, saying that they were legal fees when, in fact, they were just a repayment for a hush money. And now we have Robert Costello, who used to be an advisor to Michael Cohen that Paula was just talking about there, who is the one who is now actively rebutting what Michael Cohen is saying. That's right. Robert Costello, um, after Cohen uh, basically uh, is under investigation, he hires Costello, who's a friend of Giuliani, who was the Trump Trump's lawyer at the time, to try to help him get a pardon. And it doesn't really work out. They weren't really pardoning people. And Costello and Cohen had a falling out. So now Costello is being used by Trump to try to undercut Cohen's credibility. And we wait to see what happens with the indictment and what the actual charges look like if there are any charges. Really important to look back at all of this. Thank you for that refresher and great reporting on this, Michael. Thank you. That was a great layout, but uh, triggering, bringing all of that back, what happened in those years. And here we are now. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, sir. So happening today, tens of thousands of Los Angeles school employees will begin a three-day strike. This includes bus drivers, cafeteria workers, janitors, and other support staff. The impact stopping classes for a half a million students. Workers say that they have been unable to negotiate a new contract for nearly a year and accuse the district of unfair labor practices. Teachers have said that they will honor the strike and not cross the picket lines. Also this morning, the Federal Reserve walking a pretty fine line as it is weighing its next move to tackle inflation. This two-day policy meeting that is coming in the midst of the biggest banking crisis the U.S. has seen since 2008. So what is the Fed going to do? CNN's Christine Romans is here with her crystal ball to tell us. I mean, it's a really tough position for them to be in because they're deciding quickly right after all of this has happened. It's not like we've had a lot of time to kind of marinate on this banking crisis. The crystal ball is completely cloudy at this point. I mean, I I think the Fed was going to have to be looking at every piece of data up until the moment that they make this decision. And a reminder, this affects every single one of us. This uh, affects the borrowing costs. If you borrow money on a credit card for a home loan, for for an auto loan, but also it affects the economy. It affects jobs growth. And clearly it affects the banking system because all those rate hikes there have put some strain on the banking system. Here is the menu of options, right? Uh, No rate hike. There are a lot of people who are saying that it'd be be prudent to pause right here. You're looking at the expectations right now. Most people think it's going to be 25 basis points. But there's a case here for no rate hike. Pause after all of this stress in the system. The con of that, though, is that it could spook the markets. It could be telling the markets, hey, wait a minute, you just told us inflation was the issue number one. Now, all of a sudden, you're worried about what do you see in the banking system? 25 basis points is the conventional wisdom. Shows the Fed is is serious about financial stability and fighting inflation. Inflation is triple what the Fed would like it to see in terms of consumer prices. And then the outlier there is a 50 basis point rate hike. A week and a half ago, we thought that was in the bag, 50 basis points. It's what the European Central Bank did a few days ago because they wanted to show they were very serious about their fight against inflation, that overall inflation is the most important um, issue. I don't think very many people think there would be a 50 basis point rate hike. I want to quickly get your reaction to something we just learned, which is what Treasury Secretary Yellen is going to say at a banking association summit that she's speaking at today. Today, where she's talking about the reaction from the federal government to what happened mm-hmm. with SVB. She's talked about their intervention being necessary to protect yep. the broader U.S. banking system. This is what's interesting. Similar actions could be warranted if smaller institutions suffer deposit runs that pose the risk of contagion. Basically saying 
further rescues of depositors could happen. And I think that's a consensus. I talked to a couple people this morning who said, don't think that this is done. Because I keep saying, do we put a, have we put a line under this crisis? And I think the, the consensus is the Fed, federal government has more it could do to prevent a run on confidence if necessary. And they stand ready to do that. So I think that that's her telling the world, look, we are on duty here. We see these strains in the system. We know that fear can spread even when there aren't reasons for the fear to spread. Fear is a very toxic thing in, in the banking industry. And the FDIC, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve are all standing ready with whatever tools they have to make sure that fear doesn't overcome fundamentals in banking. Yeah. You said a few days ago. I mean, it's like a few minutes ago. I mean, yeah. things change so quickly. When I know. The past 12 days or 11 days, or has it been 11? I don't know. But it's, it's been, been three months, It's been Christine. two weekends in a row of just like, yeah. Everyone in banking and reg- these regulars, everyone's working around the clock. Yeah, nonstop. Uh, all right, Christine Romans, thank you. We'll thank see what they do. Much. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping are about to hold their second day of talks at the Kremlin. She says that he is there on a peace mission. Why the White House isn't buying it, that's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So the Biden administration denouncing Chinese leader Xi Jinping's visit to Russia, saying it gives the Kremlin diplomatic cover to commit more crimes in Ukraine. She has been trying to portray Beijing as a potential peacemaker in the war, but the White House fears China might send Russia lethal weapons. That's a concern. Jeremy Diamond, live for us this morning at the White House. Good morning, Jeremy. Xi and Putin are going to meet at the Kremlin next hour. What is the White House watching for? Well, Don, the U.S. is watching these meetings very closely for a number of reasons. But if you listen to U.S. officials over the last 24 hours or so, one thing that they've really honed in on and expressed concerns about is the notion that China could reiterate its calls for a ceasefire in the war. And that's not because U.S. officials don't want to see the fighting end in Ukraine. They say that the fighting could end if Russia simply pulled out its troops. But that's because U.S. officials say a ceasefire at this point would merely serve to ratify Russia's territorial gains in Ukraine and give the Russians time to regroup and rearm and then choose to restart the war at a time of their choosing. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, said that it would essentially amount to a tactical move by Russia supported by China. And and U.S. officials really want to dissuade the world of this notion that China is some kind of honest peace broker in this this conflict. Uh, The Secretary of State noted just yesterday that uh, China, that the Chinese president is traveling to Russia just days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin on war crimes charges. And he said that Xi's visit essentially gives Putin more diplomatic cover to continue committing war crimes going forward. One other thing that U.S. officials are watching for is this possibility that China could decide to provide Russia with lethal weapons for its conflict in Ukraine. That's something that Chinese officials so far have not decided to do, but also U.S. officials say they haven't taken it off the table yet. And so they'll see if perhaps that's one of the outcomes of these meetings. Thank you very much. Jeremy, reminding us the sun is coming up. It's the only time we get to see it is when we go to a live <laughs> shot to see what's happening outside. Thank you, Jeremy Diamond. Caitlin said, oh, the sun's up when she yeah. saw Jeremy's live good to, shot. Good to know. <laughs> um, <you>. Okay. <laughs> As we talk more about what the White House is watching this morning, she and Putin's second day of talks, it's about to begin. The Kremlin says that the two leaders had a thorough exchange of views. That's the word they used over more than four hours And all of this comes as the Japanese prime minister has also traveled to Kyiv to meet with Ukrainian President Zelensky there. Joining us now for Perspective is Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan, who is also the author of the great book Chaos Under Heaven, 
Trump, Xi, and the battle for the 21st century. Good morning, Josh. What, you know, have we been watching this? You know, you so closely watch every word that these two leaders say, given it's so highly choreographed. They've barely mentioned the invasion of Ukraine. Right, Caitlin. Well, that's for a very simple reason, is that uh, President Xi Jinping hasn't condemned the Ukraine invasion of Ukraine. He, in fact, they're uh, blaming the United States for the war in Ukraine. And this just goes to show you that the White House has a lot of good, very good reasons to be skeptical, as the Ukrainians do, that the Chinese government could be any sort of uh, arbitrary or, or uh, impassioned negotiator here. I mean, let's face it. These guys are celebrating a war crime. They're celebrating the abduction and uh, and kidnapping of thousands of Ukrainian children. They are defending that. The words, speaking of words, the words that President Xi said were that China and Russia stand ready to uh, guard the international order, okay, to stand guard over a world order that makes it safe for war crimes and repression and autocracy. So, yeah, I think that the chances that China plays a useful role in peace negotiations peace negotiations here are slim to none. All right. So having said that, then you wonder how can China, she take on this role of peacemaker, right? Especially as they are considering sending lethal weapons to Russia. I mean, is he really taking on the role as peacemaker if he's considering sending weapons? Right. I think, Don, what I'm saying here is that it's a ruse, okay, that he doesn't mean it, that it's meant to distract us from the fact that uh, China, even before they send any weapons to Russia, is supporting the Russia war effort in Ukraine in a number of ways. They're buying the gas. They're helping them bust the sanctions. Mm. They're already sending a bunch of drones and other non-lethal supplies to the Russian invading army and standing <laughs> next to Vladimir Putin, as he takes a victory lap for the war, being indicted for war crimes, is about as big a signal as you can send that uh, what they say and what they're doing are two different things. So, yes, they say they're a peacemaker. But what I'm saying is that we have a lot of good reasons to suspect that's not true. Slide of yeah. hand there. Clearly. Yeah. And Josh, one thing, though, as the White House is watching this, though, is to see if China publicly calls for a ceasefire here, if that's something that's broached during this meeting. I asked John Kirby from the National Security Council about this yesterday. This is what he told us. So if they call for a ceasefire, you believe Ukraine should and will reject that? Yes, we do, and we would uh, reject it as well. We think that that's an unacceptable outcome right now. Essentially arguing that because if there was one right now, it would give Russia the land that it has invaded so far. It would give them time to potentially regroup. What did you make of the White House's stance on that? Right. I think basically they're correct that a ceasefire advantages Russia and disadvantages Ukraine at this stage of the war when we're expecting uh, a new fighting season. In the spring and summer, there's going to be a new fighting season. But what's kind of funny about that is that Vladimir Putin doesn't isn't for a ceasefire either. He has no intention of... Uh, obeying any sort of ceasefire. Uh, so it just goes to show you how sort of flimsy and disingenuous this Chinese peace push really is. And there's going to be more fighting. We're going to enter a, a very bloody spring offensive and then a very bloody counteroffensive. And the question is, uh, are we going to give the Ukrainians the means and the resources needed to prevail in that conflict to save their democracy so they don't find themselves in an even worse position next year. And I think when we talk about a ceasefire, what we're talking about is that time is not really on Ukraine's side, that as it goes, the longer this goes on, the worse off they are. And that's why I think uh, there's a big debate both in Congress and inside the administration, frankly, about whether to speed up the assistance so that they can win faster. Uh, because if we let this go on for too long, eventually these lines will get dug in and that spells disaster for the Ukrainians and uh, horror for the people living on the Russian side of that line.
Yeah, certainly, certainly. and they have major concerns about how much ammunition they're burning through in Ukraine as well. Josh Rogan, thank you so much for joining us uh, with your perspective Anytime. this morning. All right, this morning, crowds, chaos, gun violence have all been plaguing Miami Beach this spring break. What city officials are saying about it? We don't want spring break. We don't ask for it. We don't advertise for it. We don't want people to come here for it. We don't think it's particularly good for a residential community. So we don't want it. All right, you're getting a live look at Ocean Drive in Miami Beach this morning. It looks so peaceful, right? But that is also 7.30 in the morning there. The city council, though, is trying to keep that peace for the rest of the spring break season ahead. They chose not to impose a city curfew for this upcoming weekend, despite the two fatal shootings that have happened in recent days. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live in Miami Beach for CNN this morning. Carlos, what's the thinking behind this decision? Because we've seen what's been playing out. We've seen the concerns over all the chaos. Why not impose a curfew for this weekend? Well, uh, Caitlin, good morning. So some of the city commissioners out here uh, said that they uh, did not want to punish uh, tourists that are coming in this weekend, as well as businesses for what happened last weekend. It's a move, a decision that the city's mayor couldn't have disagreed more with. He said this was, quote, a big mistake. In the end, all that the city of Miami Beach is going to do moving forward right now is limit some alcohol sales. And when the chief of police was asked whether this makes the city safer, he said... He didn't know. Miami Beach commissioners voted not to impose another curfew this upcoming weekend after last weekend's violence. We have a real problem with the number of people that are coming and the guns that are coming. The city manager issued a state of emergency and a midnight curfew on Sunday after two separate deadly shootings and, quote, excessively large and unruly crowds flooded the city. Declarations themselves are hugely impactful to those of us who run businesses here. My clientele, primarily an international crowd, I'm going to have to give them a refund. Uh, and, and it hurts. The commission debated extending the curfew this weekend. These aren't spring breakers, they're lawbreakers who don't respect police, they don't respect law, they don't respect innocent lives. Uh, and I need to follow the recommendation of our law enforcement when they tell me that they need this emergency order to protect our city. This whole notion of, you know, we got to do something. You know, we, we did this crap during COVID, right? I mean, it, let, let's be real. If it's not going to make a difference, don't punish the businesses that are going to be affected by this and their employees. Some commissioners argued that it's usually the third weekend of spring break that sees the most violence and that it was unfair to punish the crowds this weekend. In the end, they voted to have liquor stores close at 6 p.m. The city is also preparing to deal with crowds from two major music festivals this weekend. Speaking to vacation goers, some admitted that they were out past curfew. I make sure that my surroundings are safe. I'm with a friend at least, a best friend, a close friend, and um, my phone is always charged. <laughs> but you broke curfew. I didn't know there was a curfew. Some tourists said they felt safe in Miami Beach despite the recent shootings. I think that I feel safer here than in my country, so I'm not that worried. Of course, that uh, later in the night we are going to the hotel, not staying in the street, but we don't feel unsafe here. I think if you play it safe and you just do what you're supposed to do and, and just be mindful of your area around you, you're fine. 
And so the chief of police was asked whether alcohol played a role in either of the two deadly shootings here on Ocean Drive last weekend, and the chief of police said it did not. It's important to note here that the commission is still giving the city manager the power to declare another state of emergency if necessary, and so she would be able to impose a curfew if needed. Caitlin? Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. You know, we heard from the mayor there saying they didn't ask for spring break. They didn't want it. In our next hour, we're going to speak to the mayor of Miami Beach, Dan Gelbor. He's going to join us here live for what's happening in the latest. Speaking of Florida, the governor there, Ron DeSantis, has something to say about Donald Trump's legal troubles, but probably not in the way the former president was hoping. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. A grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, spent months investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And now Trump's attorneys are trying to throw out the jury's evidence and final report. Just yesterday, we reported the district attorney handling the investigation is considering racketeering and conspiracy charges. And in political correspondent Sarah Murray following this story for us. Sarah, hello to you. I know you have some new details here. So what arguments are Trump's lawyers trying to make exactly? Well, look, they're essentially trying to throw out all of the work that this special grand jury did over months and months. They're saying that the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, who's been overseeing this case, is biased and that she should be disqualified from any potential prosecution. They're saying the judge who oversaw the grand jury made a number of bad calls in how he was overseeing this panel. They also took issue with media interviews the judge did, including one with CNN. And, of course, they took issue with the foreperson for the special grand jury going on a media blitz insisting that she had tainted the jury pool. Let's take a listen back to some of the things Emily Coors was saying about the special grand jury's work and the potential indictments they may have recommended. Take a listen. We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. Now, Cora suggested there were multiple indictments. She wouldn't go so far as to say whether Donald Trump was on that list, but the Trump attorneys are saying, look, you've tainted the jury pool. This whole process basically has been ruined. We should just toss the entire work product of the special grand jury, Don. The question is, Donnie uh, uh, Willis, right, watching what is happening in New York today and I'm sure every day watching it very closely, do you think it could have an impact on the Georgia case? Well, they're absolutely paying attention. But of course, Don, as you know, they're looking at these potential racketeering charges. This is a, a complicated case if that's what they decide to bring. So they're not going to bring it until they're ready. They're not going to rush ahead with charges just because they sense, you know, the DA in Manhattan may be moving ahead of them. But they are paying very close attention to the security situation and the security preparations going on in New York so that they can take some cues for when it comes time to announce whether they're going to bring charges or not in Georgia. All right. Sarah Murray, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks. Also this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has now broken his silence about former President Trump's potential indictment. Here's what he said. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to 
use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. DeSantis now has not announced that he is running for president yet. He is currently, though, still Trump's most serious potential 2024 rival. He had been under pressure to weigh in on the looming indictment. Trump responded to those comments by lashing out at DeSantis on his website, Truth Social, warning that the Florida governor might also one day face false accusations in the future as he is better known. Joining us now for Perspective is CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times, Estet Herndon. That was real, real shady. He, he didn't it have to. <laughs> he could have taken shady. the route that we've yeah. seen Pence and yeah. other, other Republicans take where they just criticized the prosecutor here. He made a point, though, of highlighting the underlying conduct yeah. here. He did, he did. And it came after a couple days of the Trump universe trying to put pressure on DeSantis. And he didn't run away from that pressure in those comments, as you said. He made the kind of shady comment saying, uh, oh, I don't know anything about that. I can't speak to that. And I think it is in line with what we have seen him do so far. When he had that visit in Iowa, he talked about not having drama in his administration, uh, about kind of projecting himself as a serious Florida governor. Governor. The comments he made right after that was, I'm more concerned about what's happening here in Florida. I think his comments today fit within the, lane, the narrow lane that we have seen him try to criticize Trump on, which is just in terms of personality, just in terms of maybe drama, but staying away from the ideological fight because he does not want to come off as fully anti-Trump. You know Trump is not going to like that, though. No. I'm sure it touched a nerve. What do you, so now what? Yeah. I mean, we've seen Trump lash out immediately, as you said, on Truth Social, and Trump allies are going to try to seize on this. But I think that the problem for DeSantis isn't just uh, uh, Donald Trump's campaign. It's that the other contenders are also looking at him. You've seen folks like Nikki Haley. You've seen other uh, prospective 2024 nominees kind of point their view at DeSantis recently. And it has mattered. I mean, from January 15th before and after, you've seen DeSantis do a little bit of a slip in early polling. Now, that could be just people after the midterms when he was getting really rave reviews for those re-election kind of coming back to earth. And we know that polling is super early at this point, but we have seen DeSantis increasingly on the defensive and that has shown up quantitatively in the evidence. He's got to be careful though. Yeah, he does. Well, yeah, and Trump is clearly, you know, testing the resolve of people who normally do defend him. Mm -hmm. But Trump Jr. was not happy with what DeSantis there said. He said, DeSantis thinks that Dems weaponizing the law to indict President Trump is a manufactured crisis, referencing what you said and isn't a real issue. He said pure weakness, and now we know why he was silent all weekend. Yeah, I mean, this is the wedge that the Trump universe is going to drive, and it comes out uh, of really that America first language. I was just at CPAC where they talk about the DOJ and the FBI and defunding them as priorities for their political movement. And so Trump there is trying to stoke that lane of the base to say, although DeSantis has really reached out to you and kind and kind of made overtures to the MAGA wing, that this is not your candidate. The candidate only for these folks is Donald Trump. But that's not the majority of the Republican base. DeSantis is going to try to pull off some of those people, but he knows that really where he's going to make his bread and butter is going to have to be the Republican electorate at large. That's why you do have him not fully coming to Trump's defense. And let's remember, he's unique in this race. He was not in the last administration. He does not have to. He, he might be a little more free to come at Trump more directly if he decides to do that. Well, he is saying, I- I've got to spend my time on issues that actually matter to people. Yeah. So he's going to can he continue? The question is to to walk this line where he avoids discussing. Yeah criticizing. 
Trump. To me, this is the biggest question about Governor DeSantis and his candidacy. From this moment, from this time, we've really seen him rise through kind of set plays from the governor's office. He's made these announcements. He's released them to friendly media. He's really carefully constructed a rise in the conservative world. But when you're in a campaign and there's news coming day to day, when Donald Trump is sucking up so much of the news cycle, he's going to have to respond uh, uh, much quicker. And it's not going to be on issues where he's really on a home base. And so I think that's the kind of question for the candidacy going forward is, can he focus on those issues from Florida, as he's saying, as Donald Trump uh, uh, come, sucks up more and more space in the Republican primary. It's a careful line that he's trying to walk, at least right now. And the other test is how Republican candidates are, are trying to attack DeSantis, but not Trump. I mean, exactly. Nikki Haley ha has this op-ed out about Ukraine and obviously what DeSantis said, what his position was. She said, more surprising is the weakness from some on the right. They say the U.S. shouldn't care about Ukraine because this isn't our war to fight. Some call it a mere territorial dispute. Yeah. They, should, they say we should ignore Ukraine so we can focus on China. This has it backwards. I wonder yeah. who she's talking about. The day by day, the shade <laughs> levels in this race are increasing. I mean, this is... But hey, aren't DeSantis and Trump aligned on Ukraine? Trump, I mean, yes, Trump and DeSantis are aligned on Ukraine, and Haley is not pointing that out. But what she is looking at is that DeSantis, as I said, is trying to straddle both lines. He's trying to get some of the Haley base, maybe the more suburban, moderate Republican voter. She's trying to peel those folks off to make herself more uh, of someone uh, considered a top-tier Trump contender. For, she's, I, I think the thinking here is that whether Donald Trump has his base that she may not win over, she can maybe pull folks off of who are supporting DeSantis. And that's why you've seen her focus a little bit more on, on uh, him rather than the former president, where there are much more complications with his base about how you can attack him. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be tough, though. Because it's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all really one foot in, one foot out. And Donald Trump is someone who's got two feet in at all times. Yeah, because people who love Trump, they love him. People who love DeSantis, they love him. So trying to peel off, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. We'll see, though. Yep. Thanks, Estad, for joining us here. Thank you. this morning. All right, also this morning, California is getting ready for another round of flooding. Not what people there want to hear, but we are live with how stormwary communities are preparing. What is going on in California? And we're just moments away from China's President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin meeting behind closed doors in the Kremlin. We're live in Moscow and Ukraine. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, if you are waking up in California, more than 15 million people there are facing a serious flood threat as yet another of what's known as an atmospheric river is going to bombard the state. The powerful system is not only threatening heavy rain and snow, but also hurricane force winds on top of all of that. Some people have been fleeing their homes as officials are worried that roads could become impassable. CNN's Stephanie Elam joins us now live from San Bernardino. Stephanie, I mean, we can see from your rain jag there, but what are the conditions looking like? How are officials bracing to deal with this yet again? Yeah, it's just, I think we're on the 12th atmospheric river to hit California. It's like feast or famine here, Caitlin, for real. Um, as you can see, it's really windy out here this morning, and that's part of the issue. They're saying that the wind gusts could be up to 75 miles per hour in the mountain ranges and about 50 miles per hour in the lower areas. Right now, where I am by the Cajon Pass, if, if you were to able to go up north of me, that would be the area that goes through the mountains and would take you up the 15 into Las Vegas. But right now, all of this, where you can't see it yet because it's still so early here, but the San Gabriel Mountains, San Bernardino Mountains are behind me. And those are where you've seen those big snow accumulations and they're bracing for maybe two to five more uh, feet of snow uh, up in those regions. That's why officials have been asking people 
to have supplies for two weeks just in case they are stranded there for a while. They're asking them to stay off of roads. And then on top of that, there's a threat level of flooding that is now three out of four because of this much rain. Think about all of the precipitation that has fallen here in California. The ground is saturated. That means the water runs off quickly and that could lead to flooding. So there are some communities in California that are already being evacuated before the storm comes in. But this is just the beginning of this system, Caitlin. Yeah, wow, just the beginning. And they already want people to have two weeks of supplies. Stephanie Elam, please stay safe. Thank you so much. So the climate time bomb is ticking. That's according to the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes report. Secretary General saying that humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. Of course, the science is not new, but this report paints a very stark picture of where the world is heading, noting that no nation is on track to keep the, promise they, the promises that they have made. So now to CNN's chief climate correspondent, Mr. Bill Weir, he joins us now. Morning, Good morning. The biggest takeaway from this new IPCC report. Just how much time has been wasted, yeah. how much these reports have evolved in the 40 years. This is the sixth in 40 years and is just unequivocally stark. You, we are committing suicide by fossil fuels and the amount of effort and speed it'll take to head off the worst disasters is, is stunning, especially compared to the action today when you've got the Willow Project approved by the United States, China approving 80 plus new coal projects. The actions of the leaders of humanity these days does not match this warning. Yeah, so we said no nation is doing what, no right? Nation right? So doing. then what, what can some of the things that can still be done to try well, to they, help stave this off? This is the blue ribbon science. This is the culmination of studies from around the world, thousands of them, and they looked at what could make the biggest difference the quickest. And the big three would be get renewable fast. Solar right. and wind prices are coming way down. The sooner you get off of coal-fired power plants, especially, the better. Stop cutting down forests. Uh, we don't, we're just beginning to realize how important natural ecosystems are to drawing down carbon and helping biodiversity. And then we have to, you know, help developing countries avoid deforestation and then take care of those communities that depend on the forest. Same with coal towns and other places. And build more efficient buildings. It's, it's not as sexy as buying a Tesla, but insulation in your house yeah. could probably save more of the planet than, than a lot of things in your life. I'm glad you mentioned that because the IPCC, IPCC now believes that it won't be enough to simply cut back on oil and gas because you right. talked about buying a Tesla. But an entire industry will be needed to pull a trillion tons of carbon out of the sea and sky. What exactly does that look like? In the last 40 years since these reports started, humanity has put a trillion extra tons of carbon into the sea and sky. That's the blanket that's, that's heating things up. And so now it's not enough just to get off of oil and gas and stop it at the source. We have to capture that carbon and lock it back into the slow cycle, like it back under rock or under seabeds. This industry is just kicking off. The inflation reduction money will unlock a lot more of it now. But this is the very, very tiny beginning of this industry when you essentially have to build the oil industry in reverse. All those smokestacks that are pumping into the sky, we've got to figure out a way to take those and wow. put them back into the earth. Oh, amazing. Okay, so the U.S. is now actively studying something that is called stratospheric solar intervention in order to buy time for this global decarbonization. What is that, and is that realistic? This is a growing debate. It's the idea of mimicking a volcano. When a volcano in the Philippines erupted, the ash that circled the globe was enough to lower the temperature, the shade, about half a degree for a couple of years with no real ill effects. Some want to do this now with airplanes to basically spray sulfur particles way high in the sky, like where the Chinese balloon was. 
uh, and then buy us time. If you can just turn down the sun by a degree or two for a couple of years, the argument is that gives time for humanity to decarbonize as well. Some scientists say it's such a dangerous idea because it could throw off weather patterns, create monsoons, all unintended consequences. They say it shouldn't be studied at all. But you're going to hear more of this the longer it takes for the big fossil fuel interests to get on board. That's where the help is needed. You know, Saudi Aramco, ExxonMobil, the most profitable companies in the world these days, and they're not going gently away from their business model. Of course not. A lot of money, right? Exactly. Always learned so much from you. Thanks, Don. Thank you, sir. Good, Good to see, see you. you. All right. All right. CNN This Morning continues right now. That President Xi is traveling to Russia days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for President Putin suggests that China feels no responsibility to hold the Kremlin accountable for the atrocities committed in Ukraine. And instead of even condemning them, uh, it would rather provide diplomatic cover for Russia to continue to commit those very crimes. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. Don and I are here. That's the Secretary of State there weighing in because just minutes from now, that high stakes summit at the Kremlin is set to resume as Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to meet with President Putin behind closed doors again as the war is raging on in Ukraine, something mm, they barely made mention of. We're going to take you live to Moscow. That is internationally, but domestically, boy, we've got a lot going on. Donald Trump claims his own arrest is coming soon, and now police are on alert in New York City and D.C., tale of two cities, what's happening here. This is happening as the former president calls for protests. And this morning, one of the nation's largest school districts about to shut down as thousands of teachers and workers are going to go on strike. Coming up, what it means for more than half a million students there. But we're going to start this morning where moments from now, two of America's most powerful rivals, Russia's President Putin and China's Xi Jinping, are set to meet inside the Kremlin behind closed doors. It's a high stakes summit that the entire world is watching because it could have big implications for what's happening in Ukraine. This just into CNN, a senior Ukrainian official says discussions are underway to organize a call between Xi and Ukrainian President Zelensky. That would be the first conversation between those two leaders. And in a competing display of support, we're also seeing the Japanese prime minister on the ground in Kyiv right now as this meeting in Russia is going on. We have live team coverage with correspondents in Russia, Ukraine and Taiwan. We want to start this morning with CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance in Moscow. Matthew, you know, you have this new reporting about a potential call between the leader of China and President Zelensky. This is something the White House had been wanting to make happen. What else are you learning about when this call could happen? Well, I mean, it's going to be pretty soon, uh, according to the sources that I've spoken to inside Ukraine. Uh, but nothing concrete, I've been told, uh, by a senior official uh, has yet been scheduled. And so, look, it, it's still very much in the, in the it could possibly happen uh, stage. If it does happen, as you mentioned, it'd be the first time that President Zelensky of Ukraine has spoken with Xi Jinping. And that contrasts starkly with the amount of contact there has been between the Chinese and Russian presidents. It's been more than 40 occasions that they've had face-to-face uh, -face meetings. The latest one of those occasions is scheduled to take place. Well, any time now, within the next few minutes, they're expected to meet inside the Kremlin for formal negotiations on how to bring these two increasingly autocratic countries even closer together. Remember, Russia is an important uh, resource for China's economy. It's got massive reserves of oil and gas and of forestry and minerals and things like that that it is supplying increasingly to China. And for, for Russia, China is an economic lifeline. 
offline at a time when uh, international sanctions have cut off supply routes uh, to the westerly uh, direction. So they're in this sort of, you know, increasingly close alliance between these uh, two countries. Military aid is something the Russians desperately need from China, ammunition for the battlefield to push the front lines forward from their point of view. That's something China has held back from so far. But behind closed doors, the, there is suspicion that that could still be discussed. But you know, front and center of the diplomatic meeting on this occasion is this Chinese proposal for a peace plan to end what they call the crisis in Ukraine. It calls for talks between Ukraine uh, and uh, Russia but it does stop short of uh, demanding that Russia pull out of the territories that it's already conquered. And that's why there's so much skepticism in Ukraine uh, and in the West. Yeah, I mean, this breaking news is just remarkable that they are working to get Xi and Zelensky on the phone. What would Zelensky, you've been reporting and talking to so many Ukrainian officials, you know, since this invasion began, where would Zelensky even start, do you think, with the, with the Chinese president? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, China is an important country for, for Ukraine as well. It, it would much rather be engaged uh, under Chinese mediation uh, with some sort of peace process than see the Chinese go full on over, full on over to Russia's side and start providing Russia uh, with battlefield technology and with ammunition and with, and with munitions and, and things like that, because that could really turn the tide of the war uh, against, against Ukraine in Russia's favor. And the Ukrainians desperately want uh, to avoid that. But of course, the negotiating position, as far as I understand it from Ukraine, has not changed. They, they're, they're saying that they will not uh, settle for any um, territorial losses uh, when it comes to a final settlement uh, of this conflict. Yeah. Remarkable reporting. Matthew Chance, thank you. Keep us updated. And as we await for that meeting with international coverage here, I want to bring in now senior international correspondents, Will Ripley in Taiwan. Ivan Watson joins us from Kharkiv. Uh, good morning to both of you. So, Ivan, as a relationship between Russia and China grows, it's a need for stronger weapons in Ukraine. Is that much louder now? Uh, we are hearing a constant drumbeat from Ukraine's Western allies of new support coming to this government and to its military. The European Commission just announced 1.5 billion, billion euros in aid today coming to Ukraine. Yesterday, the Biden administration announced $350 million worth of ammunition uh, as the European Union, uh, some 17 countries plus Norway, announced a million rounds of artillery ammunition that it was going to rush to Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the Ukrainians are saying, yes, we need every uh, bit of equipment and ammunition that we can get. And if you travel around frontline areas, even with all this assistance coming in, Don, you'll be struck to see uh, how many Ukrainian troops are moving around in ordinary civilian vehicles or talking about the difficulty that they have to get uh, something as simple as a rifle or that there are still uh, uh, fundraisers and kind of GoFundMe attempts to try to uh, pay for the commercial drones that the Ukrainian uh, different battalions and, and companies are using on the front lines that is essential to protect them from Russian troops to conduct surveillance and so on. So it, there is this uh, uh, race to try to keep the Ukrainian military equipped, even as it continues to suffer enormous losses on the battlefield in this conventional war of attrition against a much larger enemy. But they know that time, I mean, time is not on the side of, of, of Ukraine here, and they're worried about just how long this extends, Ivan. 
They, they are. And, you know, as we're monitoring uh, the visit of the Chinese leader to Moscow right now, Don, we have this kind of split screen moment happening, too, where you have another important Asian leader, the Japanese prime minister, Fumio Kishida, who's made his own surprise visit just today, arriving by train from Poland in Kiev to meet with the uh, Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, with a message from Tokyo that Japan is all in to support Ukraine in this war against Russia, that Japan is condemning Russia's invasion a little bit more than a year ago, and it's declared annexation of territories that it has occupied here. And, and I think what we're seeing here is that while uh, the Chinese leader is declaring his friendship with, with the Russian president uh, and also talking about peace, that Ukraine's Western allies, which include countries like Japan, are saying, we are all in with Ukraine. You want to support Russia? We're going to keep running uh, weapons and finances to Ukraine in this existential war against Russia. Yeah, and Will, we've seen President Xi, obviously he is in Russia. He has now invited Putin to come to China. He's called him his dear friend. That is quite the context and the background if you're going to see Zelensky getting on the phone with the Chinese president next. Yeah, because obviously those are two very different conversations. Putin and Xi praising each other, you know, holding these lavish events for each other. Uh, meanwhile, President Xi on the phone with President Zelensky will have to convince him that China's 12-point peace plan is somehow a good deal for Ukraine, even though it involves uh, an end to Western sanctions, negotiations that would see Ukraine, you know, giving up territory that Russia stole, and even a NATO pullback from eastern borders, along with, you know, reconstruction efforts that probably would benefit the Chinese themselves, Chinese contractors. And so that's going to be a pretty hard sell. Uh, but as uh, Ivan mentioned and others have mentioned, uh, you know, Ukraine does need China on its side because they're a huge trading partner. So it really does put Ukraine in a pretty difficult position. They get a lot of support from democracies. Certainly they have support from here in Taiwan where, uh, you know, the foreign minister just today tweeted out that this is really hypocrisy that Putin and Xi are, you know, claiming to talk about peace when Putin's doing what he's doing in Ukraine, and she has his ambitions for Taiwan. Yeah, remarkable scene setting there. Also, to see that split screen. Will, Ivan, we want you to stay with us. Stay close, because we're going to wait for this meeting to start. We're going to be tracking that live. Also here this morning, as Don was noting, police are on high alert, not just in New York City, also in Washington, after former President Trump called on his supporters to protest and, quote, take our nation back. Trump claimed he would be indicted and arrested today in the investigation of the hush money payments to the adult film actress, Stormy Daniels. No indication yet that is actually happening today, but it does come as the New York Police Department has told all of its officers to be in uniform and ready to deploy starting today. That's according to an internal memo that was obtained by CNN. Manhattan's district attorney hasn't actually said if and when criminal charges are coming, but a source close to the Trump legal team says they don't expect it to actually happen or an initial appearance before next week. So joining us now is CNN legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, who knows this well, Ellie Honig. He's also the author of the book Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, which is out now and highly relevant, obviously, <laughs> to everything we're talking who about. Who knew I was breaking yeah. this kind of news? Yeah. Do you have any news to break on the timing? No, but I can tell you how it works. Um, when you're done putting your witnesses in front of the grand jury, which it now appears you are, now you're at the phase where you're going to present a potential indictment to the grand jurors as a prosecutor. It's just the prosecutor and the grand jurors in the room. What you do is you lay out the charges that you want them to consider. You give them a summary of the evidence they've heard, and then you leave the room. They vote. 
and you tell them, if you have questions, I'll come back in. When you're done, knock on the door. You hear that knock coming from inside the room. 99% of the time they say, here's your indictment. Mm. Maybe 1% of the time they say, no, no bill, as we call it. Yeah, but the indictment is pretty widely expected. I mean, we're still yeah. waiting. Trump's team is as well to get word that this is actually happening. As that is happening, though, you know, this you have been probably one of the most vocal people about it. This is a risk for Alvin Bragg to take. It is not a slam dunk for him, uh, but he's moving ahead with it because. Yeah. Is it the other risk, though, that it's a testament to the idea that no one's above the law if the crime was committed here and they do have evidence of that? Yeah, I, I can see that both ways. I see sort of three types of, of risk here. First of all, the conduct that we're talking about, I think a lot of people see is not that serious. It's not even hush money payments to a porn star. It's the way the Trump organization booked that hush money payment on their internal books. I don't know the proper way to book a payment to a, a porn star, but they put it as legal fees. So that's the conduct. That's pretty low on the caliber of what types of crime. Because it wasn't actually illegal. a legal fee. It wasn't actually a legal fee. Then there's the evidentiary problem. The key evidentiary issue here is not did Donald Trump know hush money was paid. That's not a crime. It's did Donald Trump know that those payments were booked that way. And if you listen to Michael Cohen's recording that he made, remember he recorded Donald Trump, he says in that, they're talking about Karen McDougal, the other case, but Michael Cohen says to Trump, Trump's like, how are we going to do this? And Michael Cohen says, Alan Weisselberg and I are going to handle that part of it. Don't worry. And then, so those are the first two. And then you're talking about the timing of it. I mean, this is six and a half years later, and I think it begs the question, why now? So, Ellie, I have heard from others that this is a essentially a sort of a crime that involves a paper trail. Yeah. And paperwork or paper trail crimes are very easy to prove. So you're saying it's going to be difficult, but wouldn't this be wouldn't the bar be really low to prove that? Yeah, I disagree with that. The, follow I, the trail. I've heard that statement from, I think, a mutual friend of ours. It's easy to prove the paper crime if the person's name is on the paper. Here, the paper trail can show us exactly how this payment was made exactly how Michael Cohen was reimbursed, and exactly how they booked it. But what I, I'd be shocked if the paperwork showed is a direct link to Donald Trump. If there's an email, a text, a memo, where Donald Trump says, yes, guys, do it this way, or I'd like you to do it this way, that's a smoking gun. But short of that, the paperwork's an important part of the story, but just saying it's a paper case, there's a paper trail, doesn't necessarily get you to the core issue of the defendant or the potential defendant's criminal liability. Just real quickly, there's yeah. also, as we were watching Georgia, um, the, according to a source, Fannie Willis is, is, is looking at this RICO. Not her. She's saying that she, sure. in past cases, she likes to use the RICO statute. But there's, isn't there a separate RICO statute? Which is racketeering. Statute, yeah, which yeah. is racketeering. Here in New York, that can be used in this case with Donald Trump now with, the, with Alvin Bragg? Yeah, so RICO is just the racketeer-influenced corrupt organizations. RICO and racketeering are basically the same thing. There's a federal RICO law, and virtually every state, definitely including New York, definitely including Georgia, have their own versions of the RICO statute. And what that is is a powerful tool for prosecutors where you can show this was an organization, a group of people working together to commit a pattern repeated criminal offenses. All right. We'll see. All right, Everybody's guys. standing by, Ready watching to go. and Let's waiting. Go. Yeah. Thank you, Ellie Honing. I appreciate that. In the meantime, this morning, 30,000 school workers in Los Angeles are walking off the job. Bus drivers, cafeteria workers, janitors, other sports staff won't be showing up for work. And classes for more than half a million kids have been canceled. Three-day strike comes after nearly a year of failed contract negotiations between the union and the country's second largest school district. Let's head now to Nick Watt, live in Los Angeles. Wow, early for a crowd. Good morning to you. What do workers want here? What's going on, Nick? 
Well, what they want, that kind of depends on who you ask. You know, Don, there were supposed to be last-ditch uh, talks late yesterday. Those talks were abandoned before they even began. That might give you some indication as to how far apart these sides, these sides are. And less than 12 hours later, as you mentioned very early, on a filthy wet morning here in Los Angeles, we have a picket line outside a bus depot. These workers say they want better conditions, more money, and most of all, they say respect. More than half a million kids will not be going to school today. The second largest district in the nation, more than a thousand schools in all, so much noise. shut down by this strike, called by the union that reps the bus drivers, cafeteria workers, special ed assistants and custodians. Like Jose Tovar, whose current wage puts him below the poverty line. We're not asking for the world, but just you know, to live above water. One in three of our members is either homeless or has been houseless while working for LAUSD. Their union is demanding large pay hikes, more full-time jobs, more staff and, quote, respectful treatment. Some parents are sympathetic. We have some of our most underpaid workers doing some of the most challenging jobs on our campuses. The district made an offer, including a pay rise, but only half the 30% demanded. Under California law, we cannot drive the school system into a bankruptcy position. And if we were to acquiesce to all of the demands, that is exactly where we would be. That is not legally allowable. So half a million kids don't go to school while the adults argue. I support my kids and ultimately I, I, I feel that they're probably being left behind uh, in, in a, a battle between, you know, adults. Apparently, it's gotten ugly. The district calls this strike illegal, claiming it's all about the money, not the other stuff. Union leaders deny that and claim during this whole process, the district subjected workers to surveillance, intimidation and harassment. Some have been harassed to the point where they've lost their job, they've lost income. We have not been presented uh, with compelling evidence that there's widespread abuses. Are there issues? Yes. Each one of them is vigorously investigated and consequences are applied. During the strike, there will be some childcare provided at a few schools and parks and box lunches for the many who rely on free school meals. The union claims 96% of its 30,000 or so members who work in the district voted for this. A strike scheduled to last three days. So, barring any breakthroughs, there's no school till Friday. And these picketers have been out here since about 4.30 this morning. You mentioned, Don, that the teachers' union asking its members to also strike in sympathy. Now, the teachers themselves went on strike back in 2019 for six days, and they did win some concessions, better conditions, smaller classes, and a little pay rise. Now, what is going to happen here? We don't know. The strike is on for three days. What happens if there's no resolution after that? We just don't know yet. We'll be waiting and watching. Don? You may be out there covering 4.30 in the morning, these crowds. Thank you, Nick Watt. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right, this is not a quote many people expected to hear from the mayor of Miami Beach. We don't want spring break. Miami Beach officials are hoping to put an end to the weekends of chaos they have been seeing. What are they going to do about it? We're actually going to ask the mayor. He's on the program next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
So we want to show you what we're monitoring here. Obviously, two big stories at this hour. If you look at your screen, this, these are live pictures, as a matter of fact. This is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He's on stage in Orlando. It's at an issues conference, a Republican issues conference there. Um, we're going to monitor to see what he has to say about a possible indictment of the former President Trump. Also, we're going to get some live pictures now. You can see she... Um, China's President Xi Jinping about to meet with Vladimir Putin there. Looking at live pictures from Moscow at the Kremlin. That meeting should happen at any moment. Uh, we're going to bring that to you live to see if they, what happens there. So we're watching Orlando and we're also watching Moscow this morning. Domestic and international news here on CNN. Now we want to take you to Miami because the city of Miami Beach is sending a simple message to spring breakers. That message is don't come. And it's all because of an eruption of violence over the weekend. A visitor recorded this video from his hotel room window of Friday night's deadly shooting. Firefighters had to hose blood off of the street in South Beach after a second deadly shooting earlier Sunday morning. Now, Miami Beach issued a state of emergency and a midnight curfew Sunday night due to the violence and the rowdy crowds. But last night, the city council rejected a curfew for this weekend. The mayor, Dan Gelber, says that we don't want spring break in our city. That's a quote from him. And he joins me now. Good morning, Mayor. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Nice to see you again. Uh, obvious question. Why don't you want it? Spring break? Spring break is just not uh, something that almost any city in Florida has wanted. Uh, young, um, really unruly, um, hard to control, uh, you know, people coming into your city. Uh, in, in our case, tens of thousands in a small area. Uh, sometimes it's just unruly, but uh, as has happened over the weekend, sometimes it's much worse than that. It's violent, if not deadly. And we had two deaths in two days. Uh, we're a residential community. You know, so for us, this is just not something we can uh, endure. But th there's no curfew this weekend. Do you think there should be? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think uh, we had a, a pretty boisterous meeting last night. And uh, by a vote of four to three, I was on the losing side. Uh, our commission decided not to extend the curfew to this weekend. I think they were swayed uh, by the bars and, and club representatives uh, that packed the commission meeting. Um, and I think they hope and believe uh, this weekend will be better. I am not uh, in line with that. I don't, well, I hope and pray as well. I don't think that's a plan. I think uh, curfew is a plan, and I think we needed to take stronger action. All right, considering your, what you just said here, CNN spoke to the owner of a Miami Beach hotel. That owner blames the city and elected officials who are beholden to the night, nightlife industry. Listen. The blasting music, the dance performances that a handful of businesses use to exploit the public realm, the fact that the city says, sets up multiple stages and has DJs and bands, we embrace the spring break atmosphere. Your response? Yeah, well, uh, I, we don't embrace the spring break atmosphere. We don't advertised for it. We don't seek it, unlike other cities in Florida, like the Lauderdale that created the spring break and then ran away from it. We never uh, asked for it. We just simply try to police it. We bring in uh, more police into our city than uh, is uh, you know imaginable on ATVs, on horses. We have goodwill ambassadors. We try everything we can to control the crowds. 
but there are just simply too many of them uh, to control. And often when you have that many people, just a few uh, act in a way that is uh, not simply chaotic, but, but sometimes criminal. And that has been our challenge. So uh, I don't disagree with everything um, Mitch said. I just think that uh, we understand what the problem is. It's, it's too many people, uh, uh, too many young people, too much disorder, and, in, and really an inability to control. Those two, um, Don, those two murders happened within uh, steps of police officers. They were there within seconds. Arrests were made within minutes. Uh, but when you have that many police and you cannot deter a crime like that, then you have a public safety issue and you cannot balance that uh, with with bar receipts, frankly. So for me, it's a binary choice. If we cannot keep our streets safe in this particular area at this time, then we shouldn't have people there after midnight. All right. Mayor of Miami Beach, Dan Gelber, thank you very much. Yeah, a lot of developments happening there that they have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, also this morning, we're tracking Putin and Xi now meeting at the Kremlin. This is a big meeting that the world has really been watching. Our CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is there. We can see the two leaders greeting one another in the Grand Kremlin Palace. Obviously, we know they're going to St. George's Hall. Uh, they're going to have these meetings today. Matthew, what are you watching for on the second day of talks between Xi and Putin? Well, Caitlin, these are the, this is the formal uh, segment of the official uh, state visit. You can see the two leaders there, Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, standing sort of to attention as the national anthems of their countries uh, are played. So there's a high degree of ceremony around this. It is such a symbolic moment for Russia because this comes, uh, you know, it's the first time Xi Jinping has been here since the, end, since the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. But it's also just a few days uh, since Vladimir Putin was indicted by the international criminal court for war crimes. And so this is very symbolic show of support for China, uh, from China for Russia. Russia is an important resource for China. It gets its oil and gas from here increasingly um, and, you know, has a, a growing trade relationship uh, with Russia. It's an important lifeline from Moscow's point of view, particularly because the sanctions are trying to strangle uh, the, the Russian economy from elsewhere in the world. And so these two people have been, countries have been thrust together in this increasingly deeper uh, alliance. Uh, behind closed doors, uh, there's expected to be uh, discussions about further economic um, development between the two countries, bringing them closer together with more economic ties, but also po possibly the provision of Chinese military aid to Russia. It needs weapons. It needs ammunition on the battlefield of Ukraine, where it's been running short. China has stopped short of providing that so far. But, you know, that, that could change, something people are very closely watching. But also there's this issue of the Chinese peace plan for Ukraine, uh, which has been discussed already during a four hour meeting yesterday between the two leaders here in Moscow. Um, uh, we've learned uh, from a senior Ukrainian official this morning that discussions are now underway between the Chinese and Ukrainian governments for a phone call between the Chinese and Ukrainian uh, leaders to discuss that peace proposal. Nothing's concrete yet, we're told, but if it goes ahead, it would be the first time the Chinese and Ukrainian Ukrainian presidents have had a conversation. That contrasts starkly with the relationship between the two leaders we can see on our screens right now. They've met each other face to face more than 40 times. It is one of the closest international relationships, if not the closest, that, 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 that Russia actually has right now. Um, and so, again, very symbolic uh, that Russia, from its point of view here, uh, with, with Xi Jinping uh, at the side of its president, um, showing the world that it's not isolated. At least it has China uh, on its side.
Interesting that they have met 40 times and that they're trying to encourage this phone call between Zelensky and she, something John Kirby at the White House has encouraged as well. But it's interesting to watch. This is more than just it's about support. Optically, obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin wants to see support on an international level. Uh, for himself. He's not getting that, obviously, from NATO and Western nations. But also, they need the money, they need the resources as well that China could possibly provide. Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Also this morning, there's a new bombshell lawsuit surrounding Fox News. A producer now claiming she was misleadingly coached, manipulated, and coerced. Those are quotes by the network's legal team. And Kaylin, we were just uh, watching what's happening at the Kremlin. Another live picture now coming out of Orlando, Florida, at this issues conference for Republicans. We are monitoring the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about to address Republicans there at a party retreat in that city. A Fox News producer filing two new and explosive lawsuits against the network, alleging that she was coerced into giving misleading testimony in Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation case against the company. Abby Grossberg worked for the host Maria Bartiromo and Tucker Carlson. She's now accusing the network's legal team of intimidation while they prepared her for a deposition. CNN's Oliver Darcy is covering this and joins us now. What is she alleging exactly? She's saying that when she was talking to these attorneys before she went in for the deposition, that they, she alleges, manipulated her into giving testimony that wasn't accurate? That's essentially what she's saying. This is just more legal trouble here for Fox News. Uh, This producer is saying that she was basically bullied and intimidated and coerced into giving misleading testimony when she was deposed in Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the network. I'll I'll read to you actually from the lawsuit. Uh, It says, Fox News attorneys acted as agents and at the behest of Fox News to misleadingly coach, manipulate, and coerce Ms. Grossberg to deliver shaded and or incomplete answers during her sworn deposition testimony, which answers were clearly to her reputational detriment, but greatly benefited uh, Fox News. And this, this bombshell lawsuit or pair of lawsuits comes Uh, at a really critical time in this case. Uh, Fox News is set to duke it out in court with Dominion in a key hearing later today. And so news that she potentially was you know, coerced into giving misleading testimony during a sworn deposition is, is obviously a, a pretty explosive allegation, Kaylin. But isn't she saying that they were setting her and another anchor up to be the fall guys for all of this, correct? In her lawsuit, she's alleging rampant sexism yeah. at Fox News. And so she is alleging that uh, that sexism played a role in trying to basically set Maria Bartiromo, who she worked with, Um, up and her up to take the fall for some of these allegations in Dominion Voting Systems uh, lawsuit against the network. I I, want to note, too, there are a lot of other allegations in here that deal with sexism. What's Fox saying? Um, uh, Fox is saying that she was basically a disgruntled employee Hmm. and um, these allegations uh, shouldn't really be taken credibly. I'll read you their statement. They say Fox News Media engaged in an independent outside counsel to immediately investigate the concerns raised by Ms. Grossberg, which were made following a critical performance review. We will vigorously defend these claims. I talked to her last night and talked to her attorney. They dispute that this was a, there was a negative performance review. They say they want to, or she wants to, um, expose the lies and deceit she witnessed at Fox News for years and that she is now coming forward with this lawsuit to do just that. Another lawsuit for Fox. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Oliver Dorsey. 
So later today, the Federal Reserve will meet on whether to raise interest rates again. How might the banking crisis, how that could impact its decision there? And a member of the Financial Services Committee, there he is, Republican Congressman Brian Donalds is going to join us in just a moment. Byron Donalds, excuse me. All right, welcome back. You are looking at House Speaker Kevin McCarthy there. He is taking questions in Orlando. This is at the Republican retreat. He was actually just asked about the hush money payments and the investigation going on here in New York with former President Trump. We'll bring you that live in a moment. But also this morning, the Federal Reserve is facing a difficult decision as they begin a two-day meeting on whether or not to raise interest rates after we've seen the recent turmoil in the banking system. Two bank failures and an 11th-hour rescue of Credit Suisse have investors expecting a smaller quarter-point increase as the central bank is continuing its fight to bring down inflation. So joining us now to talk about all of this is Republican Congressman Byron Donald of Florida, who serves on the Financial Services Committee. You're going to be holding hearings on this next week. What do you think the Federal Reserve is going to do? If they do a smaller interest rate raise, if they do a quarter point, is that helpful or hurtful in your view? Um, I, I think it's going to just keep things kind of going the way everybody assumes it's going to go. I think a quarter point's fine. Uh, me personally, I think the Fed should just go ahead and go to 50 basis points because the underlying issue, wh whether we want to talk about bank balance sheets or not, is this inflation in our economy, which is really crippling uh, uh, younger families, seniors, people on the lower end of the economic spectrum in America. They're suffering the most. You have to get this inflation out of our economy. If you can do that and get that job done, you can then figure out how to contain and, and protect bank balance sheets to the best that you can so the banking system can continue to thrive. Do you think there's a, an appropriate legislative response here, maybe insuring deposits over $250,000? What do you want to see as a result of what we've seen play out with banks? Actually, I don't really think there's a legislative response because if you look at the facts, a couple of things occurred. Number one, at Silicon Valley Bank, they didn't have a chief risk officer for about six to nine months, somewhere in that time window. Obviously, they weren't paying attention to the duration risk on their bonds. A big question, question we have is what was Mary Daly, who is the president of the San Francisco Fed, what was she paying attention to and how, why wasn't she raising the alarms on a bank that she was regulating and overseeing what was going on there. You have a failure of management at this bank, not a contagion in the banking system overall. So I don't think there's a legislative fix. What probably should have happened is the FDIC should have, should have allowed for a sale to happen pretty quickly. And then you can figure out how to manage the rest of the banks um, in that same kind of position with respect to their balance sheet. Okay, Congressman, we'll wait to see what those hearings look like. And also, you're joining us from Orlando, where the Republican retreat is happening right now. We just saw House Speaker McCarthy speaking. We actually want to play a soundbite of what he just said, weighing in on our next subject, which is, which is this looming potential indictment of former President Trump. Look, the thing I think about, um, it was interesting. Someone, someone briefed me on... Um, the use of money in a situation like this before. And you probably covered this. Remember when the DNC and Hillary Clinton paid the law firm a million dollars and, and said that it was for something else and we found out later it wasn't? It was all about the Russia collusion. It wasn't for legal part. And so they went through and they got investigated. A million dollars they spent. And you know what? At the end of the day, they didn't get prosecuted. They got fined. Hillary's campaign got fined $8,000, and um, the DNC got fined $100,000.
Congressman, there's the rest of the remarks there are still playing out. He was essentially arguing that what's happening with, with Trump in this investigation is that it's political, that that was personal money, talking about the timeline of when the payments happened. We don't know if the indictment is going to happen or when it's going to happen yet, but Trump has called for protest. If there are protests, do you think that they should be peaceful? Of course. And I think that, of course, every protest should be peaceful. We've never argued for anything different than that. I think if there are Americans who choose to protest, they should do it peacefully. But let's be very clear. What Alvin Bragg and his office is is attempting to do is use essentially an investigation that the DOJ looked at, the FEC looked at. They did not bring charges. They said there's nothing really to do with this. They moved on. And he's trying to, to quote legal experts, shoehorn some legal theory to go get Trump. That's the essence of political prosecution. That's what's happening right now in New York, which I think is wrong. He should be focused on the on the people who are actually perpetrating crimes against the people of New York today, as opposed to playing gotcha politics. Three House committee chairs are now publicly demanding that Alvin Bragg sit for a transcribed interview, turn over material from his investigation. But we haven't even seen an indictment yet. Don't you think they should wait for the actual indictment to happen before they can call for a congressional investigation? Uh, No, I don't think so, because even if you have a situation where you have a prosecutor who is really now living outside the bounds of even his prosecutorial prosecutorial authorities um, um, and, and abilities, that's something that, yeah, judiciary should take a look at that. Oversight committees should be able to take a look at that. We don't want to have a system of justice in our country that is politically motivated. And if you're going to go pull out the the payments to, to Stormy Daniels through Michael Cohen and then now say that there's some some hidden felony nobody knows about and you're trying to raise the stakes to bring that in. Yeah, Congress should look at that because we don't want <clears throat> an unequal application of the law. We don't want a law basically to just point at one person. That's not our system of justice in America. That is, I believe, under congressional purview. And Chairman Jordan and Comer expressly stated that in their letter uh, that they released uh, yesterday. But how can you investigate it if you don't actually know what the charges are yet? Well, this is why we're just asking for simple documentation about the, the, the communications between former members of the New York DA's office and what they're going on with right now, where federal money's used associated to help this investigation move forward. Those are simple uh, requests of information that, we've, that we're making at this point. We'll look at that response and then make a determination from there. Well, also asking him to come for a transcribed interview. You're from Florida. Your governor, Ron DeSantis, weighed in on this yesterday. This is what he said. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. Congressman, what'd you make of him making a point to note the underlying conduct here? Uh, I mean, look, I just think that's the, that's uh, Governor DeSantis trying to explain fully his viewpoint on this whole thing. But look, I'm not going to get into the political semantics, obviously, that are happening in Florida right now. We got to get back to the issue at hand. 
Alvin Bragg is overstepping his bounds as a prosecutor. Uh, there have been issues with prosecutors who have been widely using their discretion in, in some respects, overusing it, while at the same time in his city, he's ignoring violent crimes. He, the, the NYPD's arresting people. He's letting them walk out the back door. That needs to be the focus. You know, the, the back and forth between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, that'll take care of itself in the future. Yeah, well, I should note that, that Alvin Bragg, did, his office did say homicides are down, shootings are down in Manhattan. But on, on DeSantis and Trump, it is a real question. You're from Florida. If DeSantis runs, which candidate are you going to support? Listen, first of all, Ron DeSantis hasn't even gotten into this race. So the hypotheticals, I don't really get into that. Um, right now, we're focused on what we're doing uh, to get the American economy and the American people back on track in Congress. Governor DeSantis is doing his job as governor. I was with him the other day dealing with Hurricane Ian uh, um, aftermath reports, trying to get pressure on FEMA to actually do its job and get trailers to the people who are still about 1,300 homeless in my district. FEMA doesn't want to put trailers because we live in a flood zone. I mean, talk about ridiculous. We're focused on that. And Donald Trump is running for president, and he's focused on trying to get our nomination and then going on to potentially becoming the 47th president. So that's the things that those are the things that matter right now. All right, Congressman, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning from Orlando from the Republican retreat. Of course, anytime. It is the first full day of spring and we have to try out an urban legend. Okay, Harry Enton. Gosh, what is going on? Just, we'll explain. That's all I have to say here. We'll explain coming up. Finally, it's spring, but Americans may be falling out of love with the season. CNN senior data reporter, Mr. Harry Enton, is here with this morning's number. It's got an egg. I don't know exactly what that means, but do your thing, sir. Do my thing. Okay, this morning's number is... 68, because that's the average high temperature nationally in April and May. What nice weather we have coming for us this springtime. And indeed, that's the number one thing that people look forward to in the spring. Warm temps, 34. Outdoor time, 26. I wonder about spring cleaning at 3%. And I'll just note, this is all about a myth, Don. Can you, in fact, balance an egg? Is it easier during the spring equinox? The answer is no, though, as before the commercial break, we did try. It's not worth the trying. And, you know, put that on the table. Phil and I were trying to do it. Is that thing boiled or is it? This is hard. I could throw this right at you. Okay, right I was going to say, because if it drops, then there's a problem. <laughs> Harry, thank you. Thank you. Welcome to spring, Harry. Welcome thank you so spring. much. All right, Gladys Knight is on a midnight train, not to Georgia, to Washington, D.C., because she and other stars are going to the White House today to receive the National Medal of Arts. Gladys Knight, Bruce Springsteen, Mindy Kaling, Joy Louis-Dreyfus, Jose Feliciano, and Vera Wang all are going to receive awards. President Biden will also award the National Humanities Medal to 11 acclaimed authors and journalists, including Walter Isaacson, who was the CEO of CNN from 2001 to 2003. I remember that. Remember those times? <laughs> well, he's getting yeah. an award today, so good for him. Good old days. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Newsroom starts right after this quick break. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.